0: What is it you're contracting to do when you're contracting to work for an employer? And I think this is where it gets really uh, in, in intense, the kind of domination, because if you, it, you know, I don't know if either of you have employers, um, but if you think about it, um, I mean, I know you, you do, but you may not have a kind of, more, you know. Uh, where you're going every day to work, but um, could,
1: could, could you could you tell how we look? We're men of, of vast wealth. We're landed aristocracy. We're essentially we're we're the gentry, really. I, I'm glad you could. I'm glad you could tell by looking at us.
0: It's it's very apparent.
1: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek,
2: and I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got a special guest, Corey Robin, who is uh, associate professor of political science at, at Brooklyn. Uh, college and CUNY, if I'm not mistaken, and author of um, the Reactionary Mind, which is a uh, history of conservatism that's very good, and also author of the upcoming um, biography of Clarence Thomas, which is called, if I'm not mistaken, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. And when is that coming out, Corey?
0: Uh, September 24th or September 26th, one of those two days. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but I imagine you can you could probably pre-order it now if you like, though.
0: Yes, you can definitely pre-order it now.
2: Yeah, and 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 um, um, I think it's it's going to be a humdinger. So you know, if if you're interested in um, you know, conservative juris, jurisprudence and ideology, I think this is definitely worth picking up. Um, so yeah, take that in mind. Um, Alexei, do you want to start us off here with the the freedom question?
1: Sure. Yeah. If, if it's okay with you, Corey, I, I figure we might start with a discussion of of freedom, and, and then that might make for a good transition to to the book on Clarence Thomas, if that works. That sounds great. Wonderful. So I, I was really enjoying uh, some of the things you sent and keeping track of of the importance of defining for for these leftist movements and the, these rising stars that we have with with AOC and Rashid Talib and the and the DSA. Um, you know, the importance of of theory and theoretical frameworks to ground. Uh, political action. So, you know, I noticed in in your writing on reclaiming the politics of freedom, that part of why it's so important for the left to realize this is because of the success of the right of conservatism uh, has maybe been misunderstood. And and you suggest that perhaps their success is grounded in their taking claim of the philosophical terrain uh, on the point of freedom or the concept of freedom. And uh, it's a moral uh, political battle and a moral ideological battle that the left needs to engage in. And perhaps uh, we need to be more conscious about doing so. So um, maybe you can, can lay out a little bit of why, uh, w- why this is important to the political work that needs to be done. And then from there, we might proceed in, into fleshing out um, why freedom over equality and so forth might be a good underpinning for the left, theoretically.
0: Yeah, so I wrote that piece reclaiming the politics of freedom um, back in, I think it was 2011. It was actually a talk that I'd given in 2010. So remember, this is at the height of the Tea Party, uh, and Obama was still president. And um, and I and I bring that up because to say that today today to say that the rights, you know, moral claim or that the right stands for freedom, can, can sound odd. Uh, in the era of Trump, and, and the, <laughs> there's a good reason why it sounds odd, <laughs>
2: um,
0: but uh, I do think it's important that, you know, that at least one big part of the modern conservative movement, um, as you know, a wide variety of historians have shown, really um, laid claim to the mantle of freedom and claimed um, in all sorts of ways that they were the true defenders of freedom and that the real threat to freedom um, was from the left, um, I just recent, more recently did a piece on Hayek in the Boston Review and I, and I went back and it, it was, it's, it's just really striking in his pieces in the 1930s and the 1940s. This is Friedrich von Hayek, the economist and, and philosopher. It's just striking how much he thinks that the, the conservative argument or the free market argument against the left um, is not a technical argument. And remember, he's you know, quite an accomplished technical economist. Um, it's not a technical argument. It's not an efficiency argument. It's not about, you know, capitalism can deliver the more good goods for, you know, than than other systems can. It's really, he thinks, fundamentally a moral and a cultural argument, and it comes down to the question of freedom. And the other part of it is how much he thinks and how dangerous the, this is, but how much he thinks that the left has capitalized and controlled the discourse of freedom and that he wants the right to wrench it back uh, uh, for itself and you know, and that really was a, a big part of the context of of the right wing ascendancy throughout the twentieth century,
1: right? And that so that's the reactionary move that Hayek makes uh, on behalf of the right to reclaim freedom. Uh, after he, I think you wrote that he he saw the victory of the economic argument already having been won over the central planners and so forth, and so uh, he saw that the the need to move to to claim the victory morally. Uh, as well, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And and again, and and freedom really uh, was a, a big part a big part of the argument, the moral argument that he thought had to be won. And so that you know it, it is a long winded way of saying back in 2010, you heard a lot of this kind of freedom talk uh, from the Tea Party. Um, and and I, I and the other part of that article that I wrote was that I and I've always felt this about the left that it has never taken the right's arguments seriously. Um, uh, it's always uh, a, a large part of the left you know, has been completely uninterested in the right's arguments. It's, that's changed a bit, I think, with Trump. Um, th- they felt that the right doesn't have any arguments um, and they felt that the, you know, the, the beginning and the end of the right-wing uh, political agenda has rested you know, on kind of emotional appeals of various sorts. Um, during the aughts that was thought to be you know fear and security talk that terrorism was the big the big thing um, and you know now more recently it's thought to be a kind of racial animus again devoid of any sort of political arguments and content um, so that's the other context for that article is to say you know the right does have certain arguments and one of them in in their arsenal has been has been freedom and I, just one last quick thing is um, where I was coming from in that article and, and still believe is that in the United States, in particular, freedom has always been, um, you know, probably the leading um, uh, political vernacular. And uh, Eric Foner, uh, the historian at Columbia, has a you know great book called The Story of American Freedom. And you know the basic one of the basic arguments of that book is whoever controls freedom talk controls political discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I you know I, there's a there's a broad backdrop um, to this thing, um, and 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 that was really what. Um, uh was driving that argument which I think was the first time I really made it about why the left needs to take freedom seriously uh and and reclaim freedom for what was historically a left political principle.
2: Yeah, um and so like moving forward a year uh you have this great um post co-written with some other folks on cricket timber uh it's called let it bleed and it's kind of a takedown of the bleeding heart libertarians. Um, and I would, you know, most of it is about what I might characterize as the dictatorship of work, the f- the fact that most people in their workplace, they have no freedom, they have no democracy, they have no influence over their conditions of labor. And so maybe you could go through that 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 argument trying to say that, you know, here's in a very concrete sense... Here is a way in which the, the, the left agenda is freedom expanding.
0: Yeah, so um, this was an article or a, a blog post, but it was like 6,000 words long.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> it was pretty epic that I wrote with Alex Gurevich, who is a political theorist at Brown, and Chris Bertrand, who's a philo- political philosopher in Britain at, at Bristol. And, um, uh, you know, the main thrust of that uh, article uh, was to really try to challenge libertarian arguments about freedom by focusing on the workplace. You know, the workplace is, uh, you know, uh, Marx talks about this quite a bit, the way it's this sort of hidden abode of capitalism. Uh, when people think about capitalism, they oftentimes think of the market, the free market. Um, and, you know, the other half of, of capitalism, as, as Marx says in, in chapter 14 of Capital, uh, you know, there's the freedom in the market, and then there's despotism in the workshop. Um, and, and we felt that this is, you know, the workplace is just something that is this kind of black box, um, certainly for libertarians who hardly ever talk about it, but also more generally, I think, among the media um, and, and liberal intellectuals. And and, and it, I mean, I should say it's it's striking how much of that has changed in the last six or seven years. Um, but, you know, when, when we wrote that piece and, and, and prior to that, when I was blogging, you know, I was constantly trying to you know, bring up the workplace. And 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 the idea about, behind that is that the workplace is really a sphere of what the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson calls private government. Um, it is yeah, yeah. Uh, a sphere of autocracy. I mean, and gov- private government, frankly, is a kind of uh, a, a gentle way of putting it. Yeah. Um, it what it really is, uh, is a sphere of autocracy. Um, and in this article, we go through all the different things um, that, uh, you can and cannot do at work almost entirely dependent upon the will and caprice of your employer or of his or her minions. Um, and, you know, one of the most striking, and, and, and I could go through so many examples, but I think one of the most striking ones um, is something that I first learned from Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Nickel and Dimed, which is about the right to pee on the job, um, which is this, you know. I I don't quite know how to describe it. Um, You know, this incredibly brutal um, contest that has gone on in the American workplace because American workers don't have the basic right to urinate um, at work. And um, so, what oftentimes happens, particularly in low wage kind of work where there are, um, particularly for women of color, um, is that they end up using um, adult diapers. Uh, because they literally just cannot get off wherever, you know, we have this image of an assembly line. It's probably a little bit out of date, but whatever the work is, you can't leave the works site, the site where the work is happening, just to relieve yourself. Um, And it's incredibly monitored as well by employers who keep track um, with all kinds of, and and, and this, by the way, is not some kind of old-school holdover from the past. There's all kinds of high-tech um, surveillance mechanisms, you know, hotel maids, for instance, housekeepers in hotels are are subject to this kind of surveillance as well. So uh, that's just one of the many basic, you know, what we take for granted. I think what people in the media, in particular, take for granted uh, that you, 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 you that you would be able to do that's just denied to American workers. So there's the denial of rights on the job, and then it, And but but what's even more um, uh, frightening is that, that that denial of rights on the job extends off the job as well. And back in 2012, there were a bunch of articles about how employers were really um, monitoring and instructing how their workers were voting in the presidential election. Um, that's just one of the many examples. People are penalized for speech and behavior they get, they engage in off the job, not on the job. So there's that as well. Um, so there's there's the way your employer controls you at work. There's the ways in which your employer can uh, control you when you're not at work. Uh, and then there's what uh, Ryan was bringing up, the sort of basic lack of control uh, and the lack of voice you have to engage in protest about any of these things. And, and, the, and the final thing is, then I'll be quiet, um, mm-hmm. is is all of this is almost entirely legal. Um, uh, the, the, the legal protections for workers are so few uh, in this country, that you know, unless you know the reasons for doing, the for the employer punishing you or, or re- retaliating against you, have to do, say, with race or gender or one of those protected categories. Um, if it's not to do with that, it's it's basically thunderdome, uh, and and they can completely control you.
1: Right, and, th- and this is to your very good point about the. Complete inverse of the reality that the libertarians or the right generally pose freedom as, which is uh, getting the state out of your business uh, and presuming that freedom lies everywhere else. Uh, where this bit, the picture that you just painted is uh, one of complete uh, domination and control in those. Private spheres, those very spheres where where the government is not allowed to intervene uh, because of the dominance of the right politically. And, And it seems to me that in fleshing out this juxtaposition about what freedom means for the left or what it should mean for the left as against the right. Um, non-domination seems to be to be key because the right has made this kind of Hobbesian uh, notion of freedom as pure choice, and fear and liberty are consistent. And you, and you and you, as long as you uh, choose it, it doesn't matter under what conditions that choice was made. Uh, and and in in this this blog this long blog post, uh, you talked about the fact that when you when you contract, you're you're not just signing up to do certain things, you're, you're alienating your will to the employer to, to have control over you in all the ways. And and the, the right says, well, at least you've chosen to do that, just the same way that ap- apparently unpaid interns choose to work for free. Uh, and so it's very uh, important, it seems to me, theoretically, to understand that freedom isn't mere choice, absent understanding these coercive conditions, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, so that's a big part of it is is the, the conditions under which you're making the choice. But I should say, you know, that's an argument, I think, that the left has you know historically made that if if you know if you're a poor person and you're making this choice out of desperation, it's not really a free choice. I think the argument that um, that we're making actually goes significantly further because even if you were to set that aside, that whole thing, what is it you're contracting to do when you're contracting to work for an employer? And I think this is where it gets really uh, in, in, intense, the kind of domination, because if you, it, you know, I don't know if either of you have employers, um, but if you think about <laughs> it, um I mean, I know you, you do, but you may not have a, a kind of, more, you know, uh, where you're going every day to work, but. Um, c-
1: c- could you, could you tell how we look? We're men of, of vast wealth. We're landed aristocracy. <laughs> we're essentially, we're, we're the gentry, really. I, I'm glad you could, I'm glad you could tell by looking at us.
0: It's, it's very apparent. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> what is it you're contracting to do if you're a a secretary or if you're a a waiter or, you know, if you're a teller at a bank, what is it you're contracting to do for your employer? Um, You know, oftentimes these job descriptions are paper thin and they're not worth the paper that they're written on uh, because there's very little way of enforcing them. Uh, And so that's the other part of this is that, and this is where the Hobbesian argument, for those of you who are listening, who are political theory students, you know, if you've read Leviathan, you know, what you do is you contract, uh, you know, you, you contract to submit to Leviathan, um, but it's you know that you know, and, and Hobbes at least has the the guts of his conviction to say, and what you're contracting to do is to submit to Leviathan's will in almost you know it with in all matters, save for one, which is you know your own immediate self-defense, um, and the kinds of contracts you have to sign um, to an employer. Um, can include a whole array of things that, you know, how, how is this part of my job? Well, it turns out um, your, your job is what your employer says is your job. Uh, you know, an employment relationship is a relationship of legal, legal subordination to the will of another person. And, and so I think that really um, is, you know, is, is, is what it comes down to. Um, it, you know, it's both the conditions of en- entrance, as you said, but also, what are the conditions of work that you're agreeing to in the first place?
1: But it occurs to me that, that you're also doing more than just saying heteronomy is the problem, that someone else is, is uh, substituting for your reasoning and your judgment and, and that you're, you're not truly autonomous, um, because that, that could be one response that, that really that the left needs to just support uh, autonomy. And maybe that is the response, but it seems to me there's, there's even more depth to what you're saying in terms of what the, the alternative should be, what freedom really entails.
0: Yeah, and so um, I mean, uh, and here I'm. I'm speaking more for myself. I mean, Alex and I are currently writing a a, a longer piece on freedom and and what it means. Um, And I mean, at least this part we're in in agreement about. But I think the other uh, other big part of what freedom does entail. Um, and it, you know, but, but but before I get there, I just want to really stress this because you know I think particularly among leftists, this is an important argument to remember. You know, the liberal argument is freedom is the absence of external constraint, and that's called you know negative liberty, and that's leftists have always poo-pooed this as a kind of uh, you know bourgeois sort of liberty. But even on that very minimal definition, the workplace, what's so striking is how absent. That is, you know, Hobbes says, you know, freedom is the freedom of movement without external impediment. If you don't have the right to urinate, the most basic bodily motion, uh, you can yeah. you can see how how constrained that environment is. So it's it's certainly um, that's one part of the freedom. But I think another big part of the freedom that both Alex and I believe in, and it's again something that uh, Ryan alluded to when he talked about democracy at work, is the right to be part of a collective um, that will determine the conditions of your own work. Um, and yeah, this, yeah. you know, I think is um, a really central part of freedom, which is, is kind of democratic governance. Um, uh, and uh, it's something that people sort of intuitively get in the political sphere. Um, and, you know, I think increasingly understand in, in, in the private sphere, um, but it's not enough just to consent, you know, to the conditions of work, um, but to have an actual voice on the job. And, you know, historically, this is what labor unions, this has been, uh, you know, really the central demand of what labor unions have always cared about the most. And it's also been the h- absolute hardest thing to get um, for workers. Yep. Um, you know, employers in the end are willing to take concessions on wages and benefits. But giving up that kind of right to rule at work, the right to determine, you know, the conditions of work um, has been very, very hard. Uh, uh, for unions to get and for employers to give up. Um, but, you know, there have been some unions historically that have been able to do that. And, and that kind of right to have a voice on the job, to participate in setting the terms and conditions of your own work, to engage in political conflict um, in order to sort of find some way to supervene at work, uh, I think is, is, is really critical. And, and again, a critical part of what it means to be a free human being
2: yeah may maybe just to to back this out a little bit you know we've been talking about libertarians a lot of it seems like the kind of libertarian moment has passed they've they've either become centrist liberals or they've gone on to the harder the racism stuff and white nationalism but at this moment you know in twenty twelve twenty thirteen uh you know you you had the classic libertarian discourse about negative liberty and um you know, uh, non-aggression principle sort of thing. That if you set up the right procedural uh, system, or which there there that that nobody is forced, quote unquote, to 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 you know sign up to anything, um, then you have no coercion. But the reality of any like state, um, you know, uh, any like political community is that. There, there is always coercion because there is scarcity and people disagree about, you know, who gets the resources. And what a democracy does in a way that I would say is freedom enhancing is to allocate that scarcity and that coercion in a way in which everyone gets a say in where it goes. And we agree that, you know, however, you know, the the vote goes, like, subject to civil liberties, constraints, and so on, that's where, you know, we, we, will, we will say that we, instead of just saying, like, I'm starving, I'll sign this job contract, like, I have a vote, I'm going to sign this contract. And I think similarly, in the workplace, you could say... Yeah, you know, you can't just work however you want, maybe, because, like, these, you know, operations are difficult and, like, you know, it takes some effort and, you know, some people are lazy, maybe they don't show up and so on. But if you have a union and you have co-determination where there are worker representatives on the board of directors, that way you can allocate the sort of coercive aspects of, of the work, the parts that are unpleasant... And to say that, like, well, I agree to this in a much more meaningful sense rather than just saying, like, if I don't sign on the dotted line, I'll starve. Is that, would you say, a fair description?
0: Yeah. And, you know, and I think it, um, you know, I think it's 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 just to expand even further. It's 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 not just, um, you know, to be kind of part of a democratic collective uh, that deliberatively sort of agrees to how to distribute the shit work. (laughs) <laughs> um, which, which is important, though. I mean, you know, I, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't minimize that. Um, but also, you know, uh, you know I, 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 I think there's a, you know, there's actually a kind of continuity between more sort of left-wing Marxist thinkers, including Marx, but also more liberal thinkers like John Stuart Mill, who was a kind of liberal socialist toward the, you know, uh, toward the end, uh, toward the sort of end of his career, about kind of the self-development um that could occur um when people um you know have an opportunity to kind of increase their talents and powers and skills um you know well i should use the word skills because that has such a such a kind of george w (laughs) bush barack obama um you know race to the top kind of um
1: uh, on uh, on this uh, this, uh, podcast where you. We, we use arete, excellences, virtues in the classical yes. sense. We can do that. <laughs> exactly.
0: I mean, but, yeah. and, but that's yeah. what it is, and, is and, to, and to kind of develop that. And, um, you know, I just saw the other day, uh, God, I can't remember. I think it was Matt Grossman who is on Twitter. He's a great political scientist. And, you know, one of the things he was, that uh, was a kind of empirical poli size study showing, like, that, you know, the, the amount of political knowledge that workers in a union have. Is you know systemically greater than the kind of knowledge, the amount of knowledge, and the kind of knowledge that workers who don't have a union have, and that's just you know just one small example of the kind of broader education uh, one gets, um, I think, through the process of collect you know collective action and collective institutions um, that 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 you don't have without a union. So I, I think it's you know it's a whole array of 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 kind of knowledge and self development through collective action, um, that I think is, you know, is critically important.
2: Yeah. Your job's not just, you know, it's, it's not just like performing the task in an ideal sense. You, you want your job to be meaningful, to, to be, uh, you know, um, something that you're, you're proud of performing and, um, You know, this is, I think, the big, the big swing against um, a lot of what conservatives talk about when they mention unions. You know, it's like, oh, you have a union and they're going to destroy the company. Like, the union has an interest in the company uh, continuing to produce good products, and conversely, you know, you see a lot of executives and investors just looting these companies, and so you know, you could imagine a, a, a world in in in, uh, you know, say for uh, the utopian society of like Norway or Denmark or something where everyone's unionized, but they still have very successful businesses, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was a graduate student at, at Yale in the 90s and 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 there's very strong unions there, um, both for the clerical and technical workers, but also the service and maintenance workers. And I remember, um, there was a Yale was the administration or management was making a move to subcontract something with the dining halls and, and the unions were fighting this. And I remember the, the dining hall workers, uh, the, 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 the people who cook in particular, put on a, a kind of banquet one night um, to showcase the different kinds of you know, meals they could and would like. To, and, and, you know, these guys were like, you know, really talented um, uh, uh, workers and, and, and chefs. And you know Yale was systematically you know ignoring and kind of uh, you know, deskilling is a, is sort of a technical word, but you know really just making the job just a crappy job, leading to crappy food, and and there were all these talents you know, that were there. Um, you know Adam Smith in the beginning of the Wealth of Nations talks about you know all the innovations, the in, like the technological innovations that were driven by workers. Um, oftentimes, looking for more efficient ways of doing things so that they could have more leisure time uh, on the job. But you know the kind of inventiveness that Smith, you know, the godfather supposedly of modern libertarianism, which is you know completely untrue. Um, but you know the the kind of talent and inventiveness and skill and um, and vision and imagination that Smith was able to see in common workers is just something that, um, you know, modern libertarians, you know, hardly see at all.
2: Yeah,
1: that's right. No, yeah. We, we, we've talked about Adam Smith on this podcast before and it's, it's unfortunate how, how, uh, bad his reputation, uh, seems to be today given, given the complexity of his arguments. But, uh, you know, it, it occurs to me that the first principles that you talk about coming back to with freedom, um, it's clearly not just procedural, and it's, and it's distinct from the liberal view of uh, equity or equality as the end, where, where it's simply about distribution of resources, because um, in, in a sense, you know, as, as the ancient Greeks would say, you, you need mere life before you can have the good life. And, and so in a sense, the ability to have the materiality um, that frees you up to to then pursue and and become human in the way you just described, with all those creative abilities and talents. And, and the, the ways that like the whether it's the universal basic income or the job guarantee uh, or any number of these policies um, are good not just because they eliminate starvation and all these other things, but the ways that they give the the conditions for um, pursuing those talents and those lives that people otherwise can't pursue. Um, maybe that's something that, that the left needs to talk more about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, whenever I teach Marx, you know, and, and we, I talk about this in class, you know, he was a great reader of Aristotle, um, and was really indebted to that kind of classical idea of flourishing, human flourishing. And, um, you know, it's not just that these material goods enable the good life, although that's very true and important. Um, It's also that you know, in the deliberation. I mean, I think kind of Marx's innovation and 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 what makes you know what what socialism at its best really should be about is um, it's the politicization of the economy, Um, and in the real sense of what that means, which is that you enable ordinary people to argue about the distribution of roles and responsibilities and goods and resources, um, and that you don't just leave it. To the market, the, the alleged impersonality of the market, uh, but you give people a say in, you know, the conditions that make their their lives, and in the process of that, you know, there's both the kind of the material distribution that gets you to the good life, but it's also in the act of distributing and the arguments about distributing um, is also part of what it, you know uh, the good life. and so I, I do think you know that's that's really uh, that's very important.
2: This is maybe a good spot to switch to uh, Clarence Thomas.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Um, the 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 Joe Biden um, maybe a good jumping off point is to talk about his appointment, uh, his his confirmation hearings, rather um, back in nineteen ninety one, if I'm not mistaken, um, in which joe biden was the chairman of the judiciary committee and uh you know he you know he oversaw that process so maybe you could could you walk us through what happened there with with the 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 questions about his politics and the the anita hill accusations
0: yeah so uh clarence thomas was uh nominated to the supreme court by george hw bush um uh, after the retirement of Thurgood Marshall, uh, who had been the first black Supreme court justice. Um, and it was pretty clear that, um, a big reason why Thomas was nominated, um, by Bush was that he was black. And the feeling was that, um, you know, this would be a very, um, it'd be hard to oppose him, uh, if he were, if he was black and, and for a while that actually proved to be true. Um, he had, uh, support I mean the NAACP was very slow uh, to oppose him and there was a lot of division within the black community a lot of um, Jim Clyburn was actually a uh, state senator in South Carolina at the time was a big supporter of Clarence Thomas's um, so there was a you know there was a lot of uh, a fair amount of support within the black community um, and over the summer um you know the, the, there was uh, uh, arguments about Thomas um, which we can talk about or not um, but, uh, it looked by the end of his, um, I think it was eight days of testimony, both he gave five days of testimony and then there were three days of witnesses. It, it looked pretty certain that he was going to be confirmed. And it looked in fact that, um, according to Jane Mayer and Jill Abramson and their book, uh, strange justice, which is the best book written on this, it looked like Biden was probably going to confirm vote to confirm as well. And so it looked like he was headed for a pretty solid vote, you know, in the upper 60s, lower 70s. And then uh, these um, uh, allegations came out uh, from Anita Hill that he had engaged in um, uh, multiple acts of sexual harassment, um, all of of a a verbal nature. Um, And that prompted um, an additional set of hearings. Um, which, you know, again, just, I don't know how old you guys are, but I think you're probably uh, (laughs) younger than I am (laughs) from from the looks of it. Uh, But I was in graduate school. I was in my um, second year of graduate school. So this is all, you know, kind of fresh to me. Um, uh, But, you know, Biden was essentially forced to convene a second set of hearings um, where Anita Hill gave testimony. Other people gave testimony. I mean, it got very freakish at moments with, um, Orrin Hatch reading out passages from *The Exorcist*, which he claimed um, <laughs> were was the source of Anita Hill's stories about the pubic hair on the Coke can. I mean, it, it was it was pretty surreal stuff. They they had you know alleged experts talking about that she was a an um, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, it, it it's worthwhile to go back and watch these when you think that you know the Trump show is is. You know, that we've never had the kind of like lunacy in this country that we've had, you know, till now, because you see some of these people. It was pretty crazy stuff. Um, in any event, um, Biden, uh, I think, you know, the feeling was among some people at the time and now increasingly so really bungled um, the hearings, um, in part because um, he... Uh, he, he, wanted to, he wanted to be the neutral guy. He wanted to show that he was not biased one way or the other. And he, and, and, and he you know, the funny thing is he claims, you know, he claimed at the time afterwards, you know, that he was um, sort of snookered in this by the Republicans. They didn't play fair, which always amused me because, you know, his great claim to fame is, you know, supposed to be his shrewd sense of real politique. And then, you know, time and time again, he's like Lucy with the football um, by his own admission, <laughs>
1: He is a Democrat. He is a Democrat after all.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the truth of the matter is, is that, um, I, I think it wasn't just that he got snookered. I, I, I think he was, you know, pretty sympathetic to Clarence Thomas, um, and pretty skeptical of Anita Hill. Um, and a mm. lot of people were, you know, at the time, not, you know, necessarily women. Uh, but you know, it was, it was, she's since become a kind of much more uncontroversial figure, but at the time, you know, it was more controversial. Uh, anyway, um, They, you know, the the hearings ended and then the vote, I think in the end was something like 52 to 48. Um, It was one of the closest votes in uh, up until that time. I think may have been the closest vote of any Supreme Court justice in in American history.
1: He did not quite get borked.
0: (laughs) No, no. But it was that was all hanging over him in in the background.
2: Yeah. Um, One. Uh, I'll let you. I'll let you jump in, Alexi, in a second. But one one thing you you say about Thomas is that he is a black nationalist, and I think that'll be a very surprising thing to 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 hear for a lot of you know liberals and leftists. So so could you unpack that that idea? Um, ex- explain in what sense he is a black nationalist?
0: Sure. Um, So the first thing is, is that um, he has a past of uh, of, as a black nationalist on the left. Uh, He was a campus activist at Holy Cross. He was part of a class that helped desegregate uh, Holy Cross. Um, He arrived there in 1968, the fall of 1968. And um, when he got there, you know, this is you got to remember, this is the year that Martin Luther King is assassinated. Uh, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated Martin uh, Malcolm X has already been assassinated and so it's a moment where the black freedom struggle um, is is it's kind of beginning um, sort of in, go, going into sort of uh, despair um, which continues um, 1968 is the last time there's any great le- legislative achievement in Congress the the Fair Housing Act um, and and so it's a time when um, and, and historically it should be said you know, um, black nationalism tends to thrive at moments of, you know, of, of moments of um, when white supremacy seems to be on the ascendancy or when the freedom struggle kind of hits the wall of white supremacy. Um, and, and, and this is definitely a moment like that. And so Thomas is, is a campus activist. He's the founder, one of the co-founders of the Black Student Union. Um, and which, you know, that choice of using the word black um, was very significant at the time. Um, you really were showing, it was kind of a West Coast phenomenon to start embracing that term. Uh, and it was sort of sort of militancy. And he continues that throughout his time uh, in, in college. And so uh, my argument, um, and, and, and these are some biographical facts um, that sort of came out at the hearings, believe it or not, before the Anita Hill um, revelations. Um, I mean, he was asked what he majored in. And he said English literature. He was asked what he monitored, and he said protest.
1: <laughs> and
0: uh, and he wasn't lying, you know, because he was he was quite active. Um, and and he was, um, you know, even amongst his sort of group of co-militants, he was thought of as you know really kind of race conscious uh, in, in 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 all kinds of ways. Um, and the argument of the book is that. That black nationalism, and and by that I mean a kind of program of mutual black solidarity that's very skeptical of integration, that's very skeptical of liberalism, it's very skeptical of the state, which it sees as an inherently white institution, uh, and that wants to foster separate black institutions uh, and sees that as the condition for black flourishing, uh, really black survival first and foremost, but black flourishing maybe. Um, all of those positions, oh, and black self-defense, I should say, have, uh, have, have stayed with Thomas yeah. Um, yeah. on the court. And just to give you, I mean, I could give you multiple examples of this, but one, if you read his uh, Second Amendment jurisprudence, um, it really is kind of fascinating. I mean, you know, there's lengthy discussions of black reconstruction And white terrorism in the 19th century, he quotes extensively from Herbert Aptheker's book on black slave revolts. Herbert Aptheker was a Communist Party historian, um, was party to lawsuits that came to the Supreme Court, but I don't think has ever been quoted um, as an authority or an expert by a Supreme Court justice. Clarence Thomas does. Uh, In a more (laughs) recent case, he extensively quotes from Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction. So he's really, you know, quite knowledgeable and 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 um, indebted to this moment, uh, in black history and African-American politics, uh, and, and sees the whole question of the right to bear arms very much through that lens of black self-defense. Uh, and that's just, again, one example. There are, are many others.
1: It's so fascinating. I, you know, I, reading this, this great book was like drinking from a, a fire hydrant. It was, uh, so much to take in and process. I, I, I just, um, you know, there's not enough time to talk about all the interesting things that that you write about and that you unearth for us. Um, but the, the the fact is that there seems to be this really interesting um, symmetry between what leftists like the illiberal, illiberalism of of Clarence Thomas and the illiberalism of leftists in their critiques of the failures of liberalism. And you know, so much of of what he points to in what we might call on the left the, the reformist uh, attempts of, you know, the state to intervene and and simply kind of reaffirm those uh, inequities because of the the structural problems. He he ascribes to white supremacy and he thinks it's just you know his race pessimism as you, as you show um, is such that he doesn't think electoral politics or the state is a refuge to to liberate. Um, but he has you know such an an interesting and, and incisive. Critique going back right to the founding uh, that not even reparations are possible because the harms are are, are so real and persistent and uh, perturbable. It just it, it's it's fascinating to see so much of um, his critiques as paralleling the lefts, and yet the the pessimism and and the kind of recourse to uh, the market is kind of the the unfortunate refuge that he takes. Um, but maybe you could talk a bit more uh, about all that.
0: Sure. I mean, I, I think the the part of the reason why you see so much uh, resonance between some of his positions, and, and and I should say he's he's still a I think a black nationalist, but he's a black nationalist on the right. Uh, he's not a leftist by any stretch, and that's not the claim of the book. He's a conservative black nationalist, of which there have been uh, uh, conservative black nationalists in the past in this country. Um, I mean, he's the first conservative black nationalists to sit on the Supreme court, which is just part of the innovation um, (laughs) that needs to be dealt with here. Um, But, but I think one of the reasons why you see so much resonance with some of the positions on the left is that I think both sides are, are, are living in the shadow of the same historical event, which is the defeat of the black freedom struggle. Um, Thomas, you know, um, is uh, alert to this uh, from a pretty early position um, and and struggling with it uh, in the early 1970s, um, and as are a lot of other activists, black activists, um, and I think the the shadow of defeat really hangs over um, both sides in different ways, um, and is 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 almost you know incalculable to talk about um, what impact that kind of the defeat of a political struggle can have because it makes it you know. All the things that liberals and leftists might talk about, like state action, like collective action, parties and movements and so forth, become very hard to imagine. I mean, we're still dealing with this today on the left on a whole host of issues. You know, climate change just being the most extreme instance of this, you know, just this sort of profound skepticism that we could actually do anything. Um, And I think that really is is at the heart of the matter for Thomas And then on top of that, you know, there's this notion that part of the reason why nothing can be done is the uh, profundity and intensity of white racism, which he sees as kind of an original sin um, that has no real historical source to his mind. And because it has no real historical source, uh, it has no real historical uh, exit either. Uh, It just becomes a kind of Uh, preternatural condition, part of the human condition almost. Um, And he sees it pervading particularly every act of state, um, including, I should say, um, a a lot of policing and prison uh, activity as well, although he has a different attitude about that as a result. Um, And also, so every activity of the state and every kind of political action. So when you brought up reparations, it's not just that reparations, you know, you could never make up for the harms that had been done. For Thomas, the, the the political agents, the people who would be doing it, make doing that making up for are white people. That's right. That's right. And, and this is what he's constantly yeah. coming back to. I mean, his critique of affirmative action is very different from your traditional right wing critique, uh, because his premises is, is that affirmative action is essentially a program that is run by white people for the benefit. Of other white people, it has nothing to do with black people at all, except that they are yeah. the victims of it.
1: Yeah, and, and, and but it parallels the noblesse oblige that some strangely conservatives tend to like. Otherwise, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, and 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 Thomas does too. He doesn't like white noblesse oblige. Um, I think uh, what he likes <laughs> is black noblesse oblige. And so, right. Um, right. you know, he's very uh, committed to a kind of black patriarchal vision um, where. A kind of black man like his grandfather, who, he, you know, is a very influential figure on his political philosophy, uh, would accumulate wealth and then through his patronage, you know, redistribute it to the black community and protect the black community from white predation. Um, so, you know, yeah, he's a black nationalist, but he's not an egalitarian um and you know he's sort of the you know at the heart of his vision of black nationalism is this vision of black men uh where black women kind of play a subordinate role if they play any role at all um and you know which and if you go back to the whole anita hill thing starts to emerge in a very different light um and his claims about high-tech lynching and so forth um which were you know on the one hand there's no doubt you know that he uh, did what Anita Hill said he did. And so it was guilty of those and committed perjury. Um, At the same time, I think that that kind of rhetoric of uh, high-tech lynching and, you know, and and, and by the way, that wasn't just in the heat of the moment. He repeats that in his memoir, which came out in 2008. So he still believes that he was, he compares the Democrats and liberals to the KKK and the Knights of the Camellia and so on and so forth. But I think there's a kind of genuineness to the rhetoric um, which is that you know what white liberalism has done, the way white liberalism has worked its poison in the black community first and foremost is to undermine black male authority, uh, and so Anita Hill uh, seems to him you know in that moment to just be the ally of a kind of white liberalism that has been uh, doing its harms to the black community, particularly to black men, for quite some time.
2: You you have a very. Um striking comparison between uh how people talked about thurgood marshall and how uh you know a lot of conservatives um they they always said oh thurgood marshall's lazy he doesn't know any law stuff and he's just getting his clerks to write his opinions for him he doesn't know anything about anything and how uh Liberals have talked about Clarence Thomas saying, saying similar stuff, um, but you, as you demonstrate in this book, Thomas has a very consistent ideology, which you can really suss out from reading his opinions and, and how he is, you know talked to the news media and so forth. So, so can you, can you like draw that out for us? Like what is his basic ideology about you know, politics, economics, and so on?
0: Well, first, let me just say one thing about Thurgood Marshall. Um, It wasn't just conservatives who said these things about him. It was also liberals. I mean, Archibald Cox, who was the, you know, special prosecutor during Watergate, who uh, was fired by Richard Nixon on the Saturday Night Massacre, was a legendary solicitor general under, uh, I think, Kennedy or Johnson, real liberal hero, Archibald Cox. uh, He said that uh, Thurgood Marshall, this is what he said about Marshall. He may not be very bright. Or hardworking, but he deserves credit for for picking the very best law clerks in town. Um, You know, this is you know again, Harvard law professor. This is not a right winger uh, who's saying this. Um, Bob Woodward, uh, in his book uh, The Brethren, you know, claimed that um, that Thurgood Marshall spent his day watching television, uh, and that when he was really you know, the reason why people liked him on the court was he told good dirty jokes. Um, not his opinion. So, this was also a kind of liberal um, yeah. suspicion, which, you know, again, people forget. Um, and, and, and it's just striking when you look at all the claims against Thomas, they line up almost, you know, word for word. It's uh, very similar to what was said about Thurgood Marshall on the part of kind of white uh, 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 liberals and conservatives. Um, but in terms of Thomas, um, and, and, you know, I. I you know, I've been working on this book for quite some time, and I, I would say the hardest thing to try to convince people of when I'm talking about this book is that Clarence Thomas, you know, has a mind and has a jurisprudence of his own. Um, and it's, it, you know, uh, both conservatives and liberals and leftists, everybody, you know, thinks, you know, he got, you know, all of his ideas from Scalia. The evidence on in many cases indicates exactly the opposite. Scalia got them from him, and he broke with Scalia on, you know,
1: makes it makes you more sympathetic to 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 thomas's race pessimism doesn't it
0: <laughs> well, that's the you know yeah i mean the irony is is that when he says you know affirmative action taints all black people um with this kind of stigma of inadequacy, and you know i mean i've again, I've been working on this book for some time, and you know I get a lot of you know well-meaning liberals and leftists, I should say, who get on and like, well, you know, he was an affirmative action, this, that, and the other. And it's like, <laughs> you're kind of proving his point, um, you know? And, and, and you know, and people are shocked when I tell them he has written over 700 opinions. Uh, and, yeah. you know, there's so much kind of, you know, uh, 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 oh, why doesn't he talk? Why doesn't he speak? And it's like, well, if you want to hear what he has to say, it's, it's kind of easy, you know, to find, like, this wasn't some kind of deep dive I did like, you know, and had to go into these archives that nobody had ever looked at. I mean, well, I think I actually did look at some of the things nobody ever looked at with Court <laughs> opinions, um, but, but in any event, um, so that's a long uh, wind up, sorry, Ryan, to your question. Yeah, so no what, what is his philosophy? Um, I, I, I think, you know, the book is divided into three parts, race, race, capitalism and constitution. So the first thing I start with is, is, is I think the foundation of, of, of his entire political vision has to do with race and his belief that racism is a kind of incurable condition, um, that it is everywhere. Um, you know, people have oftentimes misread him as a kind of colorblind thinker, um, which is, you know, very far from the truth. That is not the way he sees the world. Um, He's, you know, highly race conscious. He ble- and, 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 and not just that it's everywhere. It's, it's in places that both liberals and conservatives never want to talk about. Um, so he has a whole reading of, and I won't get into the specifics, of campaign finance jurisprudence. Where, you know, he tries to show how uh, the roots of campaign finance, and specifically the de- desire to restrict corporate spending, are rooted in uh, kind of white supremacist backlash against Reconstruction. Um, so, you know, it's, it's everywhere, uh, racism. Um, so that's the kind of foundational, uh, premise of his jurisprudence. And then, and, and that, uh, it, it, it that it infects all acts of state. Um, so any kind of liberal intervention through the state on, you know, for the sake of African American equality will only reinforce African American inequality and subjugation, uh, and so politics in the state are kind of no-go territory. And, and I think that it really, if you look at his voting rights, jurisprudence, which people, you know, liberals have a very hard time making sense of, I think it's actually not that complicated. He really does believe black people shouldn't be voting. It's that simple. Uh, and would like them to devote their efforts elsewhere.
1: But it's really interesting why because he thinks that voting isn't something that can liberate black people because the white supremacy that's inherent in the electoral system that's inherent in our governments won't permit it, right? And so so like find liberation elsewhere.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think he doesn't quite believe in liberation, so I don't want to go. Right, right, that, right. Just right, too far right. In it. Right. Uh, he is a conservative
1: individual individual flourishings perhaps right like, well, I a, like think
0: a, it's either individual he does have a collective vision he's not an individualist he's not a kind of libertarian it, in that sense would you say
1: Burkean Ber- because he believes in communities and kind of the tradition that passes on from from uh you know this embeddedness in family and community which is is that something that you think he, well, he
0: doesn't about. believe it, it passes on uh necessarily and i mean i have a different read on burke which i won't get into here today.
1: right 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 yeah.
0: uh but, but so it's it, but it, it's it's a I think it's kind of a patriarchal vision. It's that right. you know black men are the kind of foundation of protection for the black community against white people.
1: Mm. and
0: uh, and so and that's where he comes to his kind of emphasis on black the, capitalism.
1: And the market can do that for black men right
0: black and the market, yeah, exactly. And so that's the second so I, I have a whole reading of things like his takings clause, jurisprudence, his commerce clause, jurisprudence. Uh, his equal Some of his equal protection, jurisprudence, um, his uh, commercial speech, which is about um, speech that's used in the marketplace, where he's, you know, he's really out there in a lot of these things. Um, and, and the whole point is to kind of find niches for black capitalism, which he thinks is, you know, the best that can be hoped for. So that's, I think the second part is, you know, the, the, the first part is race. The second part is this critique of politics in the state and the embrace of the market. And then the last part is his constitutional vision. Um, He's kind of an originalist. I don't, you know, put too much stock in that. But what's weird about his originalism is that he has two different ideas of the Constitution. Most originalists, self-proclaimed conservative originalists, you know, kind of look back to the Constitution that was ratified in 17, uh, that was written in 1787 and ratified in 1789. You know, the kind of, the original white man's Constitution. Um, And Thomas recurs to that and will acknowledge that it's a white constitution but it's also very indebted to the Constitution that was revolutionized during the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, which I call the Black Constitution uh, and so he has these two different ideas but just very quickly I think what's interesting about you know you'd say this you, you might think you know you'd say to him well if if you think America and the, the government and everything is so imbued with white supremacy, Why would you want to recur to either the original constitution or even the constitution of the 19th century? And I think there's actually a pretty straightforward answer that he's given to that, which is that he thinks black people, particularly black men flourished the most under Jim Crow. Um, He's a real believer in adversity, you know, free through adversity. Uh, Yeah. Wow is right. And, um, I, it's not that he wants to recreate slavery or Jim Crow, but he does want to find a way of cre- recreating the instit- black institutions that were created under those conditions, because he thinks that was, you know, the American re- black African American Renaissance.
1: It's almost Darwinian, isn't it?
0: Yeah, except it, it's there's no notion of kind of constant evolution and. Right. And uh, sort of, it's it's pretty static, you know. Darwinism is a pretty um, uh, dynamic vision, I, I would say, you know. But but it is Darwinian in the sense that he believes that you know conditions of you know really deep constraint and adversity, right? Uh, you know, force you know the kind of the strongest to rise uh, to the occasion, uh, and you know, and, and that's and, and that's. Uh, what he wants to create. And he, he says, you know, it's true, I want to go backward. He says this at one point. Um, b- but because that's, because I feel like that's the key to the black future, essentially, is to go right. backward in time. Um, you know, and that's really, you know, kind of straight out, in some ways, straight out of the conservative playbook. It's, you know, it's what's called reactionary modernism. But...
1: Right. And you've talked about Nietzsche and Hayek together in terms of how it's, how conservatism kind of draws on on both thinkers. And and in your work on on freedom, you wrote about kind of the left versus the right in the politics of freedom—it's kind of Karl Polanyi versus Hayek. Uh, would you say that that Clarence Thomas fits into choosing the side of Hayek? And, and is there what, who are who are the thinkers that you think help explain um, theoretically the, the way that he orients himself?
0: Well, Hayek definitely is is one thinker, and I and I use some of the stuff on Hayek um, uh, in one of my chapters, uh, particularly on on stuff on on, on speech and money. Um, you know, the First Amendment kind of uh, stuff. So I think, I think Hayek is, um, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, his favorite novelists, uh, you know, is Richard Wright, one of his favorites. Uh, and I think that was, uh, you know, Native Son is a kind of recurring theme in his sort of autobiography and I think had a big influence on him. Um, Malcolm X, uh, believe it or not, is another influence. Um, you know, Juan Williams wrote this amazing profile of him back in 1987 in the Atlantic, uh, back when Williams was a, you know, actually a good journalist. And um, and you know, Thomas could recite for him, you know, various speeches from Malcolm X from memory. Um, you know, he had records in college that he had of Malcolm X's speeches, you know, and would listen to them. Um, and you know. Throughout the 80s, when he's in the Reagan administration, he's quoting Malcolm X uh, against liberals uh, and saying, you know, you guys want to invoke Malcolm X. Uh, and by the way, he's a you know, huge fan of that uh, the Spike Lee film on Malcolm X. He's a big fan of Spike Lee in general, actually.
1: Right. Didn't you describe his uh, black constitution at some point as Mad Max combined with Do the Right Thing?
0: Yes, it's true. I mean, you know. <laughs> You know, and, and you should again, you should read these Second Amendment opinions of his. I mean, they're really blood curdling. Um, just the centrality of black violence, as I mean, it almost parts, I mean, it'd be too strong to say it reads like, you know, it kind of reads like vulgar Franz Fanon. Um, he talks about the kind of sense of emancipation that black men felt from the ability to wield weapons of violence against their white tormentors. And he uses, I think, I, I'd have to go back and double check, but I, he uses that language of a sense of freedom or sense of emancipation uh, that, that that they felt. So, um, you know, I, I i wouldn't say, you know, I, I don't want to make any great claims for Thomas as being, like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't put him in the canon of, you know, um, great African-American or American political thinkers. Uh, mm-hmm. But, You know, he is a Supreme Court justice and has developed a very distinctive body of jurisprudence in which some of these themes that you do see in the Black nationalist canon and the African-American canon. um, I mean, there's all and I I do readings in the book comparing some of the stuff you see from Stokely Carmichael uh, in Black Power and Charles Hamilton in Black Power, uh, Marcus Garvey. There's some Du Boisian moments. Um, So there's just, you know, there's an awful lot of Kind of resonance uh, in his work, um, and if, you know, again, uh, you know, people on the left never read him, so they wouldn't see it, and people on the right, you know, don't really know about this kind of stuff, so they don't see it for the most part either. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's it's been the it's probably the strangest book I've ever written um, because everything I'm saying is once you start reading, it's so obvious, mm. you wonder how in the hell has nobody done this before um so it it's 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 been a, it's a it's been a strange, strange trip writing it
1: i bet i imagine
2: this um thinking about i'm just, just trying to get my head into the space <laughs> of of clarence thomas you know you 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 talk about how murray rothbard was a big fan of black nationalism and and he was one of the the people you know, um, for uh, uh, setting up an alliance between libertarians and like Pat Buchanan and Ron Paul, uh, you know, trying to fuse libertarians with basic like white nationalists, basically, um, and in an alliance that's that's shown a lot of fruit and and you know, being uh, Clarence Thomas and seeing people like that guy praising your political orientation while the vast majority of the black population is going in the other direction it just must be an in like some kind of incredible cognitive dissonance or something or just i don't know isolation or or whatever you might call it how do you think he kind of deals with that
0: yeah it's a great question. I mean, the, I mean, the first thing I should say is, you know, in a weird way, there's kind of a history to this. Well, before I get to the history, I, I I think, and Thomas has said this from, from very early in his right turn, um, that he would rather deal with a kind of outright bigot who's honest to your face and openly exp- openly expresses his contempt and his racism, rather than uh, the kind of uh white person who you know proffers all sorts of liberal you know uh, racial platitudes but is you know secretly harboring all kinds of racist thoughts and um you know uh his favorite song in the early 70s was the uh song smiling faces tell lies um uh the undisputed truth i think was the band it was a and um, you know it's, that's that's the the song and you know smiling faces smiling faces tell lies they don't they t- uh, they don't tell the truth and um, you know that for him was kind of a mantra uh, um, of what the problem was with white liberals and white leftists and um, you know he has in his memoir he has language about you know the rattlesnake versus the cottonmouth you know I think it's the cottonmouth snake I, I don't know my snakes but you know at least the rattlesnake. <laughs> I I remember this, the rattlesnake um, is open and, you know, announces his lethality uh, and doesn't, you know, hide it. And if you look, I mean, and he has that, you look, the syntax and the kind of animalistic imagery is word for word, almost what Malcolm X says uh, about, you know, kind of, I think, foxes and wolves or lions and foxes. I can't remember. It's the same kind of contrast that he draws. And and there's a long lineage of this, you know. Marcus Garvey, you know, uh, uh, said that the the good thing about the Klan is at least they're honest with you know you know where you stand with them, and and you know in some ways they're you know kind of a better friend to the black to the black man. Um, So I think this idea of racial, I mean, and I talk about this in the book, racial sincerity versus insincerity, is is really foundational to him, Um, and is why I think you know wouldn't have, you know, and, and so, you know, you have Garvey and the Klan, you have the Nation of Islam and the American, you know, the, the American Nazi party comes to their rallies in the early sixties. There's been this kind of long sort of fraternity uh, between uh, certain kinds of black nationalism and, you know, white racism and white nationalism. And and I think Thomas sort of comes out of that tradition. So that's the first part of that, the answer to your question. But secondly, he's quite aware that how much the black community disagrees with him and loathes him um, and you know i think he sees himself as a kind of you know prophetic figure uh who is sort of uh laying down the foundations for a vision that he understands most black people are currently not going to embrace uh, but one day we'll come to see uh the truth of, of what he has to say mm-hmm. uh, and you know I would imagine he looks at conditions as, you know, that are I, here. I'm. This is pure speculation and, you know, take it for what it's worth, but, you know, sees the way things are going, racial lines getting hardened and hardened, uh, colorblindness, you know, the Republicans used to pretend to be colorblind. They don't do that anymore. And, you know, in a way it's kind of, everything's going his way. Um, you know, this is, this is the reality of, of what politics is about. Um, and, uh, you know, condition for black people uh, has been worsening over the years. Uh, and, you know, he thinks, you know, it shouldn't depend on white people.
1: You know, the Clarence Thomas book is, is rich and, and interesting uh, for a number of reasons. But one of them, I think, is tied to this um, leftist project we started out talking about in terms of the, the theoretical way forward, because it, you suggest that that understanding Clarence Thomas is, is a form of understanding something that's emblematic Uh, of how we need to see um, both the past and the future, and that you say that it's not the task at hand, the task at hand isn't to retrace and rebut his moves from premise to conclusion, but to go back and start again with different premises, um, perhaps because he has hit upon in some of his illiberal critiques, things that are, that are really true, but, but, but we need to kind of find a way to uh, take those truths and move in a different direction. What, what did you have in mind there in terms of talking about how emblematic uh, this, this study of Clarence, Clarence Thomas might be for the left?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing is his sense of racism as a kind of sort of the autonomous life of racism, um, that it has a kind of depth and life of its own that can't really be rooted, um, in things like politics, um, or that it's, it's, it's endogenous to politics and economics. Um, and that he, you know, ultimately, I think it's kind of, you know, mostly a sort of psychological, psychocultural explanation. Um, and so I think that's the first thing. I think if you don't have a political account of racism, and I don't mean, by that, I don't mean an account that explains how racism gets used, because that still acts as if racism is this sort of thing that's just this natural ingredient um, that then gets manipulated and deployed by politicians. And I, so I, I mean something more than that. So if you don't have a, a real political historical account of racism, I think that's you know, problem number one. Number two, I think, is this notion that both the state and politics are kind of helpless in the face of white supremacy, that white supremacy is such a kind of ontological fact deep ontological truth of american social life that politics and and government are kind of helpless before it and then the third is the idea of that there being alliances between people who have you know of are, are, are different uh, radically different situations and histories and memories um you know which thomas thinks is just you know impossible uh and i and i think really those three assumptions I don't think are peculiar to him. I think they kind of uh, transcend and, you know, kind of go across the political spectrum. And I think they have to be interrogated, and, you know, and, and I, and I wouldn't want to say much more than that. You'll be pleased to know so we can go. Um, but uh, cause you know, I don't have the 10 point program as the alternative, but I, I the point <laughs> is that I, I, to try to get people on the left and liberals to see just, you know, in some ways what an eerily familiar voice this is that we have not been listening to this entire time, maybe because it is so familiar.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Corey. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Thanks for coming on. And um, yeah, books coming out in September. We'll, we'll link it in the description and um, yeah, definitely check that one out. It's going to be good.
1: Absolutely. Pre-order it now. The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Thanks
2: a
0: lot. All All right. Take care.
1: Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.
0: Of the evil that lurks within.
2: Smiling faces, smiling faces, sometimes they don't tell the truth.
0: Smiling faces,
1: smiling faces tell lies, and I got proof.